So today I'll be talking about some more of the benefits of meditation. Hopefully dealing with some of the more practical aspects of meditation. Specifically I'd like to deal with the question of why it is that we practice both walking and sitting meditation. There's often many doubts arise in regards to this, mostly because there's a great number of people who have never even heard of walking meditation. And so when they come to practice at our center, they they give rise to many doubts as to whether this is actually a part of the Lord Buddha's teaching or it's a, actually a part of correct spiritual uh, or med meditative practice. Most of the people don't doubt about sitting meditation because it's a very common thing, commonly seen in various traditions around the world. Mostly sitting meditation is, is far more common than walking meditation, except in this particular tradition. There's the tradition that we take from Burma is very serious about walking meditation. And there's a strong tradition in the forest, uh, the forest monks of northeastern Thailand uh, who have a different sort of walking meditation, but do practice walking meditation nonetheless. Apart from that, it is often difficult to find anyone teaching uh, walking meditation. So the question comes up, well, how does this walking meditation fit in with the Lord Buddha's teaching? Is there any basis for the practice of walking meditation in the Lord Buddha's teaching? And I don't have the specific sutta references. It would, of course, be nice to be able to just flip them off the top of my head, uh, maybe next time. But I'm going to go over some of the places where uh, the practice of walking meditation can be found in the Lord Buddha's teaching. And the first place, of course, is uh, in the description of when the Lord Buddha became enlightened. And this is generally, as far as I remember, it's a commentarial description. But it's a, it, it is an interesting uh, addition to, to the whole list of places where walking meditation can be found. Because in the commentaries it's explained, or in the description, which is partially commentarial and partially uh, canonical, of what the Lord Buddha did after he became enlightened for 49 days. I believe in the canon it's, it, only rec it only mentions two specific weeks. But in the commentaries they say actually the Lord Buddha stayed for 49 days, which is seven weeks. And each of the seven weeks he stayed in a different place. And for one of the seven weeks he just walked back and forth day and night walking back back and forth based on the incredible energy which came from uh, the practice of, of or came from the enlightenment from the realization of the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination and complete and perfect enlightenment and this is an interesting addition it, it's sometimes when 
I think this doesn't remove a lot of doubts because people say, oh, well, we don't know whether the Lord would actually actually walk for seven days. It's a very uh, far-fetched sort of idea. But it's neat because when you go to India, you can actually see the place where he walked for seven days. And they've got a, a monument erected to it. So for those of us who have have at least some sort of faith in, in the teachers who have passed on this information to us, and it's kind of a neat to go and see where the Lord Buddha, right away after he became enlightened, he walked back and forth for seven days. But we don't need to rely on, on, on this particular description. It's just a nice one that sort of tells us that you know, even right after the Lord Buddha became enlightened, he found it important to do walking meditation. But throughout the Tapitaka, we have canonical references to walking meditation. We have in, in many discourses where the Lord Buddha was walking up and walking back and forth in the open air. We have we have even mentions of of other recluses, heretics, people from other religious traditions walking back and forth in the open air. We have in the Vinaya, we have a description of how long and in what manner a walking path is to be made. We have rules about walking uh, in, in line with seniority. And so it's very clear in, in many ways that, that walking meditation is indeed uh, a part of the Lord Buddha's teaching, that it's very much a part of the practice which was undertaken at the time of the Lord Buddha. Many people think otherwise. They think the Lord Buddha just sat around all day. But the most important reference that we have is this reference, in, which is in two places. And again, I, I can't remember exactly where they are. But there, there's one mention of how the Lord Buddha himself practiced. And there's another mention, a description, almost exactly the same, where the Lord Buddha gives his exor extortion, exhortation, exhortation, uh, his teaching on how monks should conduct their meditation practice. And since they're both act almost the same, I'm going to give the one where the, which the Lord Buddha recommends for an intensive meditator. An intensive meditator is someone who is not traveling, who is not working, who is not studying, who is, has, uh, like all of us, who has dedicated themselves to the realization of the Lord Buddha's teaching on a intensive level, which means they're practicing uh, singly undertaking the practice without getting involved in other activities. And here's a, the recommendation. The recommendation is to split the day up into two parts. We split a 24-hour period up into two parts. One part we call the day and one part we call the night. And the day is between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. The night is between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. So we have two periods here. This is the... I mean, in those days it, there wasn't this uh, exactitude, but nowadays this is what it corresponds to. During the day, you, you have to cut out the time that it takes to go on alms round, or for all of us, you have to cut out the time that it takes to do all of the many things that we have to do, like eating breakfast, eating lunch, uh, listening to the talk, waiting for reporting, reporting, uh, and, and all of the other going to the washroom, taking shower, and so on. But apart from that, the Lord Buddha recommended that we walk and sit interchangeably, switching back and forth from walking and sitting 
there's no mention that one should walk a lot and sit only, or sit a lot and walk only a little bit. It's actually uh, the description is given such that it is clear that they should be equal, that walking and sitting should be done in alteration. First walking and then after walking, sitting. After sitting, getting up and walking. And doing these again and again, back and forth, switching back and forth. This is about the clearest idea we get of what the Lord Buddha uh, had in mind for people who practice, um, practice intensive meditation. So it's clear that walking meditation is indeed at least a part, as big a part uh, of the meditation as sitting meditation. Then we split up the night into three parts. And this is where if you've heard of the, you know, the night where the Lord Buddha became enlightened, there's three parts to the night. And in the first part, he, he remembered his past lives. The second part, he understood uh, where pe what happened to other people when they died, going to good places or bad places. And in the third watch of the night, he realized complete freedom from, from uh, delusion and a complete freedom from suffering and realization of the Four Noble Truths and uh, the freedom from defilement, where his mind was completely free from all defilement, which is perfect enlightenment. So there's this tradition of splitting the night up into three parts, and this is how the Lord would have recommended it for meditators. If we split the night up into three parts, we have four hours for each part, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So from 6 p.m. To, to 10 p.m., which is the first watch or the first part of the night, uh, the Lord Buddha recommended that we do walking and sitting. He said, for this first, for the first watch of the night, we continue uh, until 10 p.m. doing walking and sitting, walking and sitting. For the second watch of the night, the Lord Buddha gave allowance that a monk should be allowed to lie down. Uh, and during the lying down period, one was to keep mindfulness as well established and be completely uh, focused on the time when one was going to wake up which I guess basically means that we should, which we, we often do nowadays, is make a determination that we're going to wake up at a certain time. Once we make the determination, let's say in, at the end of the watch we're going to wake up, then we, uh, we continue doing the meditation, rising, falling, and so on, until we fall asleep. And then the third watch of the night, which is the last four hours, this is from... Uh, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Uh, one is to get up and start doing walking and sitting meditation again. So, I mean, the, this is how the Lord Buddha put it. To put it briefly, it means sleep four hours apart from that and all the other duties that you have, just do walking and sitting all day and all night. And this is considered the ideal for a meditator. If one can accomplish this, sleeping on more than four hours and practicing walking and sitting all day and all night, this is considered to be a perfect or an ideal meditation practice. Now I know for some people four hours seems quite daunting, so we, we up it to six hours. This is sort of standard since the time of Mahasi Sayadaw about 60 years ago, I, I believe. He sort of established this. He said, well, four hours is too difficult and you can go for five or six, but six hours is more than enough for anybody. This is how he put it. So we up it a little bit, but then apart from that, the meditation practice should clearly be the same. There's clearly no reason to doubt that uh, walking meditation is very much a part of Buddhist meditation practice. 
to the extent that the commentaries actually split walking meditation up into six parts. And this is where we actually get our six-step walking meditation from. The Pali words are Udharana, Adiharana, Vitiharana, Osajana, Sanikipana, Sanirumpana. These are in the Satipatthana commentary, the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta. They're in the commentary, the Visuddhimagga commentary as well. And so it's clear that there was some very serious uh, discussion or teaching in regards to walking meditation. It wasn't just something where we just simply walk back and forth. There was some serious uh, discussion and instruction on how to do the walking meditation. I mean, it was very similar to how we have a lot of technique in, in regards to sitting meditation. There's actually a lot of technique involved in walking meditation, involved in making it more and more refined, more and more um, complex to, the, to help our minds to become stronger and stronger. So this is the first part, is to understand that yes, indeed walking meditation is very much a part of both the Buddha's instructions himself and a part of the tradition which has grown around Buddhist meditation. Now let's get into the, the main part of the talk, which is, well, what benefits can we gain then from walking meditation? And conversely, what meditations can, what benefits can we gain from sitting meditation? When we practice walking meditation, why is it that we do walking meditation as well as sitting meditation? Isn't sitting meditation enough? And we have the answers here in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Panchaka Nipata, the Book of Fives. And this is the answer to the question, what, what are the benefits of walking meditation? The answer to what are the benefits of sitting meditation, we find, uh, at least in one sense, we find in the Sankiti Sutta of the Dika Nikaya. The Sankiti Sutta is just a whole bunch of lists, so it's very much like the Anguttara Nikaya, this lists of four or five or six or seven and so on. So in the Anguttara Nikaya we have five benefits of walking meditation. The first benefit is Adhana uh, Kamo. We are able to be patient when it comes to walking long distances or traveling long distances. Number two, Padhana Kamo. We are able to be patient and endure uh, endure the anything that takes effort. Padhana means putting out effort. So any work that we have to do. Number three, number three, apabhato means we have uh, very little disease, sickness. Our sickness is reduced through the practice of walking meditation. Sicknesses and diseases. And number four, number four is quite long. It's asitang pi tang kai tang sai tang samma parinamang kacati. Asitang, things that we've eaten. Pitang, things that we've drunk. Kaitang, saitang, anything. Basically, it's just all different words meaning food. Anything that goes into our body. Samma parinamang, it will be well digested. Kachati, it will go to, it will be dispersed, to be well dispersed into the, the body. This is number four. Number five, uh, Chankamadhi kato samadhi, the concentration which comes from 
which arises from jankama, which is uh, which means walking meditation. Jira titiko hoti lasts for a long time. It's something that doesn't disperse easily. These are the five benefits that the Lord Buddha gave for walking meditation. That we're able to walk long distances, endure walking. We're able to endure putting out effort. We have fewness of diseases. We have few diseases or sicknesses. We're able to digest our food better, and the concentration lasts for a long time. It is well established and long-lasting. So going in order to explain these just a little bit, the practice of the first one, the, the fact that the practice of walking meditation allows us to walk long distances. Well, obviously this was more important in the Lord Buddha's time than it is nowadays. Nowadays we, it doesn't seem like such a big deal that we should be able to walk long distances because walking long distances is not very uh, interesting to us anyway. It's not something that we can we think of doing on a regular basis anyway. But really it is something we should think about that how how reliant we are on the automobile. And I've come to think recently a lot about this because there's actually a rule in the in the Buddhist monastic code forbidding monks to ride in vehicles unless they're sick. And I read one uh, one monk's idea of how to get around this and he said well the way we get he wrote that he said he claimed that uh, what this gener what this means or what we interpret this to mean is that being sick is when you can't get where you want to go in the no your body is not capable of getting where you want to go in the required amount of time which is really a stretch I think I mean, it's clear what the Lord Buddha was saying. He was saying in a walk, if you, there's, there's no, there's no, I can't get there fast enough, so I'm sick. But, you know, we have no, we feel like we have no way around it nowadays. So even monks are taking cars and driving cars and so on. But it is an interesting idea if we were to uh, live simply walking wherever we had to go. And I've heard of this. I've heard of monks. There's some monks from the Abhayagiri Monastery and in Northern California who who walked some 200 miles or something. I'm not sure how many exactly, but they walked quite a long distance throughout California. I believe one of them was uh, an Anakarika, so he, he was the one who kept the money, or I can't remember exactly. I believe there was money involved, so it wasn't simply walking. But I don't think it's an impossible task. The the Anyway, the point is, it's not here to talk about monk's life, but to just think about the idea of walking. If anybody has ever, anyone has ever done any long walks, they know the, that there's a real difference between walking somewhere and taking a vehicle. It's the difference between living and living in the world and instead seeing the world like um, something that we have to rush by or we have to... Uh, escape where when we're in our car we're not we're not thinking about where we are we're not looking we're not uh, living we're only thinking about our, our destination and how many more minutes until we get there and so on whereas when you walk you're living in the world and you can feel it you feel much more grounded much more real and it's really a shame that nowadays we're living in this 
deadline sort of society where we have to get this to to point A from point A to point B in a certain amount of time. And we can see, of course, the detrimental effects it's had on the the world that we live in, our inability to walk, our reliance on the automobile, our reliance on coal and, and gasoline and so on, our reliance on things which are polluting and destroying the world. Whereas we have legs and we have feet and we can walk. If we were to just slow down and organize our lives in a different way. Of course, now in this day and age, it seems crazy, it seems impossible, but there are little ways, of course, that we can do this. Walking. And they are, nowadays, they've come to realize that actually walking is, is of incredible benefit to the body. So we can see this. We can see how walking is a very important thing. But we, it's not easy for us to do it if we're not well-trained. For myself, it was used to used to be very difficult to walk one kilometer on alms round. Nowadays, three, four, five, six kilometers is not difficult. Just the ability to walk is is the ability to live, the ability to to be free, to be free from uh, the need to have an automobile or free from being trapped in one place or so on. But I suppose it's it is arguable that this is not that that great of a benefit nowadays because. We do have automobiles and we do use them. At any rate, it, it is one of the great benefits if we look at, start to look at the world in this way. But the second benefit is, is much more pertinent because at any rate, we all have to do work. We all have duties that we have to undertake. And it's quite special how people who practice walking meditation are able to endure difficult things in a way that they perhaps were not able to before. And after we practice walking meditation, we find that we're able to work harder, we're able to work longer, we're able to endure and to be patient in whatever it is that we have to do. We see this as so because walking meditation is something which is very difficult to endure. It's something that is very hard to keep up. Not particularly because it is physically taxing, it, it is sometimes painful. If we practice long hours, we find our feet starting to hurt or so on. And, but we find that when we push on, when we strive on, and when we train ourselves to be perfectly mindful with the movements of our body, uh, one of the things that happens is our, our bodies start to flow better. When, when our minds are on our feet, we can see the difference between being mindful and not mindful. When we're not mindful, when we're walking, this is when all of the pain starts to arise, and all the aching and the stress, when our bodies start to tense up. We can see that it's because we're not truly being mindful of the object. Our minds are not here, are not, not, are not in the present moment. And when we focus, when we're mindful and focusing on the feet, when our minds are here and now and, and aware and alert, we can see the complete difference in that our movements are done with um, much more fluidity uh, and with much less uh, abrasiveness or, how do you say, much uh, less stress so that as a result, we find ourselves uh, able to practice for long periods of time, able to work for long periods of time. Also, we become more patient, we become more endurant, that things which are difficult to endure that would normally make us feel bored or make us feel uh, 
agitated, things that we couldn't sit through or that we couldn't uh, work, we, we couldn't continue with working, we have to take breaks often. It's because of a lack of patience, a lack of endurance, which we gain through the practice of walking meditation. Walking meditation is of great benefit for this. You know, when we just do sitting, we find ourselves falling asleep, or we find our, uh, ourselves being, becoming drowsy or, or be, becoming lazy. When we do walking meditation, we, we find that it's really we can practice meditation both day and night. We find ourselves not needing to uh, rest, not needing to sleep so much. And we have this great power and effort and energy that comes from the practice of walking meditation. This is the second benefit. The third benefit is that we have fewness of, few diseases, appabhato, or someone who has few diseases. Uh, little sickness, or doesn't get sick often. And this, you can look at it from a biological point of view. Doctors have said such things that walking is, is of great benefit. But mostly they look at it from a cardiovascular point of view, and so they, they, they ask you to walk at a brisk pace. Walking slowly is not considered so beneficial. But here, here the difference is that our minds are releasing, our minds are not tensing or not holding on. And so our movements are flowing very much like a person who practices Tai Chi, for instance, where the energy is flowing and the blood is flowing. It's in fact been mentioned to me that uh, maybe one of the reasons why monks become, uh, become sick or get diabetes, for instance, is because right after they eat, they do sitting meditation. And so I've always been recommended that after you do sitting meditation, after you eat, you should do walking meditation. Right after you eat, not to go in to do sitting meditation. And apparently the reason is because the sugar from the food stays in the blood. It doesn't have a chance to work its way out unless you move, unless you exercise the body. And of course this gets into the fourth benefit, is that the food is digested. It's, the, it's part and parcel. But even more so, walking meditation is something that can help to do away with diseases which are already existent in the body. There are apparently many cases of cancer which have been cured through the practice of meditation. Uh, I'm not sure specifically walking meditation, but uh, it's clear that it should have some great benefit because of the flowing of the blood and the, the relaxation of the body and the fluid movements, the uh, relaxed movements of the body which allow the blood to flow, uh, allow the food to digest and allow the body to heal without stressing, without uh, overexerting oneself. And so number four is regards to the food. Number three is in regards to diseases. Number four in regards to food. Just something else in regards to food. It's, it, it should be clear to all of us that if, we're, if we eat a fairly, a fairly substantial meal in the morning and then we go into do sitting meditation, it's clear that it's not going to uh, digest very quickly. It's something which is going to uh, give us difficulties in our meditation and uh, perhaps even create sickness because it's just sitting, it's not well able to uh, flow through the body. So it is something very important that when after we eat we should start with walking meditation. But at any rate here we start with walking meditation anyway, so this isn't generally a, a problem. 
but you can see how it would be if you were to just do sitting meditation. It would be uh, quite a disadvantage if we were to just keep sitting meditation. After you eat, you find yourself getting drowsy, and you find yourself uh, feeling that the, the food is, is just stuck in your stomach, and so on. And you can find yourself even even getting sick as a result. This is the fourth benefit. But the real benefit of walking meditation, I think, which is which sets it apart from sitting meditation. Because I think it should be said that walking meditation can bring many of the same benefits as sitting meditation. I'll go into the benefits of sitting meditation, but it's important to understand that walking meditation can bring about all of these benefits as well. And I'll, I'll, I'll maybe try to show that as I talk about the benefits of sitting meditation. right? Because you can, if we're talking about simply seeing clearly, which is our, our purpose here, well, you can do that when you're walking. It's clear that you learn more about yourself and you come to see things about yourself that you didn't see when you're doing walking meditation. So it's clear that all of the benefits of sitting meditation are not only confined to the sitting meditation. But here we have specific benefits of walking meditation, the reason why we, we don't just do sitting meditation. And I think it's worth saying that if we were born as angels, if, if we didn't have these coarse bodies, then it probably wouldn't be necessary to do walking meditation. Because there's a story of the time when the Lord Buddha went to teach in, in heaven and the angels just sat there for three months to listen to the Lord, Lord Buddha's teaching. They just sat still for three months. So it's clear that their bodies are not required to uh, get up and, and move and to allow any sort of blood to flow or so on. It's, their bodies are not uh, of this sort. Whereas the Lord Buddha himself, as he was teaching, he had to take breaks and go down to to relieve himself and to go on alms round and so on. But the fifth benefit here of, of walking meditation is really what sets it apart uh, and really what, what gives it meaning and gives it meaning as the meaning as to why we practice walking meditation before sitting meditation. And the reason is because walking meditation, the concentration that comes from walking meditation is jiratitiko, it lasts a long time or it stays for, for long, for a long period of time. And what this means is that they say during the time when you're doing sitting, if you just do sitting, then you're not able to grasp the object. The mind is not strong, the mind is not charged, so the mind is not able to grasp the object, and the object is easily to slip away from the mind. For instance, the rising and the falling, we're not able to, to grasp it clearly when we just do sitting meditation. Our minds are not charged and not able to focus not able to fix as easily. This is as as is, expl <coughs> as is explained explained in the commentaries. But when we do walking, so we find when we do walking meditation first that we get we get charged up and our minds are are uh, strong. There's a certain strength which comes in power, this patience and this strong concentration after focusing on the movements of the feet, keeping the mind focused on the feet, and so on. So that when we sit down, we're able to see the more subtle movements uh, much easier than we other, than otherwise. If we were to sit down and just start watching the subtle movements of the rising and the falling, it would be quite difficult, because we don't have this uh, preliminary practice of watching the coarse movements of the feet, uh, lifting the foot, putting the foot down, and so on. 
So walking meditation, the power that comes from walking meditation is very important. And this is the reason why we practice walking meditation first. But it, it's important to understand that it, it doesn't just mean that you know we walk back and forth and we're going to have some sort of benefit. It's important to understand when, with all of these things that it depends on the quality of the mind and the meditative state during our practice. So if we practice meditation and our mind isn't on the foot, our mind is wandering here and there, and uh, thinking about the past or the future, or is worrying or doubting or bored or distracted, then it's not likely that we're going to gain anything out of the practice. We might gain a little bit of exercise. I remember a long time ago I was I was invited to do walking meditation, probably in the style of the forest monks. Of uh, oh, I don't even I, I I don't even think so. Just there was this sort of this uh, forest monk, and uh, I don't know what, what he believed what his practice is, but he was he's a little bit of a funny monk, and he invited me to to do walking with him all night, and I thought, wow, walking all night, well that's great. So I went up and to the jetty and in front of the jetty in Wat Jom Tong and we're walking back and forth and the method is this you walk quickly and you walk, 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 walk and you walk about uh, maybe a hundred feet and then you turn around and walk back but you're talking all the time and you're talking to each other and we're discussing and talking about this and that and <laughs> actually a lot of it wasn't anything uh, about the Buddha's teaching it was a lot of just you know, asking me where I was from and you know, talking about foreign countries and, and so on but it really got us charged up and I was so excited that I could do that all night and not be not be tired so in the morning I went and asked my teacher about it and I said well what what do you think of this kind of meditation and he said that's not meditation that's exercise hmm. he said that's that's the way that's that's western that's a falang way a, a foreigner way that's not a, that's not the Buddha's way. That's just exercise. He used this English word exercise. Exercise, I suppose, is a fairly foreign thing to uh, to old school Thailand. Not the way Westerners have all these exercise routines nowadays. Thai people do exercise, but I think in the past it was just kind of silly because you were working so hard that you know, there was no idea of having to. You know, we're not talking about office workers or so on who have to get up and run on a treadmill uh, working in the field for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. You don't, you don't really need exercise. So he thought it was kind of funny and, and he certainly discouraged that sort of thing. I mean, the point is there's no mindfulness involved. You can't call that meditation. It's, it's a kind of an exercise that makes you feel good. And that's about it. So walking meditation has to be done in the same... Uh, frame of mind is sitting meditation. We're trying to to be aware and to train our minds. We're not specifically trying to train the body, though we do get lots of benefits from the body. But anyway, there are these very special benefits to walking meditation. This is just to help us to understand why it is that we do walking meditation. And I think it's something encouraging for, on a, a worldly sort of level, that uh, some people didn't realize how beneficial walking meditation is for one's life. That just just in terms of our daily, every, everyday life, how beneficial walking meditation is to calm the body down, to relax the body, to give the body this state of balance where all of the 
sicknesses and all of the toxins that exist in the body are allowed to flow and be released uh, and to be dis discarded how our food is able to be digested and so on it's something that bears noting that this is something which is very useful for everyday life for people in their everyday life and it sometimes uh, sometimes di discouraging to hear that people only do walking meditation when they leave the center they oh, sorry only do sitting meditation when people leave the meditation center, they often give up walking meditation, thinking they, they have no time, or they feel too tired to do walking meditation. And it's something which we should uh, be careful about. We should try our best that if we do have time to do, incorporate some walking meditation into our lives because of the benefits that I mentioned. And these are the benefits of walking meditation. They're actually mostly not very deep sort of... Uh, they're not on the level of, of realization of, of the Dhamma. Because as I said, the realization of the Dhamma really has no difference between walking and sitting. So when we talk about the benefits particularly of walking meditation, they're, they're mostly external to the, the goal, which is the realization of, of uh, freedom from suffering. So here we have the four benefits of sitting meditation. But it's as I said, it's important to note that these are benefits which we get simply out of meditation. In fact, these four benefits, they aren't particular to sitting meditation. But in general, we relate them or we, we uh, connect them with sitting meditation. And in general, I think it is fair to say that sitting meditation is more useful in the long term in, as far as the realization of the Dhamma. It's possible but it's quite rare for people who, to, to have done walking meditation and become enlightened. There are many cases of it, but there are fewer cases than for those people who are sitting. And this is because in sitting your mind is, easy, is easy, more easily focused. It's more easy to see something uh, clearer. It's more easy to fix and to focus on an object to see it clearly for, for, for what it is. There's a stronger concentration in sitting meditation. And the mind is not distracted, and there's less going on. I think it's obvious to most people that sitting meditation does have great advantages to it. There are many cases of people, as I said, of people who have become enlightened through walking meditation. But I think they are far fewer, and uh, these are more special cases than those people who have done, done so through sitting meditation. So here we have the benefits of sitting meditation. And these benefits can also come in walking, but are more related to the sitting meditation. And these are that it leads to happiness in the here and now. And that we're able to realize a sense of happiness here and now. So meditation is not something which we have to look for a benefit in the future. Number two, we we're able to see and to know things that we didn't see before and we didn't know before. Both about ourselves and the world around us. Number three, it gives us mindfulness and, and sampajanya, which is full awareness. Mindfulness and clear awareness. And number four, it allows us to do away with all of the taints or the poisons which exist in our minds. And this is, the, of course, the ultimate goal. So going through these in order, the, the first one, the, the attainment of happiness... I think this is something that is very important and it's a very important difference between, say, the practice of 
meditation and the practice of uh, prayer or worship. And we hear about all these people who practice worship and pray for this and that and make wishes and so on. Pray to gods or pray to angels or even some people pray to trees or pray to inanimate objects, wishing for this and wishing for that. Or they believe something, they, they believe or they worship something thinking that when they die it will lead them to go to heaven. They undertake a practice because they say when they die it's going to take them to heaven or so on. And they really miss out on this wonderful benefit which we have in the here and now and this is the benefit which comes from sitting meditation or from the practice of meditation. Because when we practice meditation we we are able to find happiness and peace in the here and now. We don't have to wait until when we die. I think this is um, it's always always mentioned as a very important quality of the Lord Buddha's teaching is that it shouldn't be something that we have to realize in the next life or realize at a later date. That actually simply sitting and practicing meditation we, we become peaceful and happy and we come to uh, we come to, be, to wake up and to find clarity and uh, purity in the present moment. That it's not something uh, mysterious or something we have to take on faith. And this comes to people even after a few days. And the first day is often most difficult. We're sitting and we're, we're, our minds are wandering. And we're not able to focus. And then another day and we find ourselves starting to get the hang of it. And then maybe the third day then our minds start to open up and everything really goes bad. But after four or five days, we were able to clear out a lot of the gross distractions and pains and uh, emotions which have been disturbing us. This is generally how it goes. The first day we're just getting the hang of it. This is the first period. The second period, once we got the hang of it, we feel like we're able to control ourselves. We're able to uh, work very uh, efficiently and we're kind of getting the hang of it starting to get the hang of it. But then on the third day, or the third period, third day, fourth day, what happens is because we're working so well, all of the things that we were covering up, they start to uh, be released and they start to open up. And once our mind starts to open up and we start to let go, then it feels like our practice is actually getting worse. And it feels like we're actually getting nowhere in the practice. Some people feel like they want to go home. They don't think that the practice is going to give them anything. But what's happening here is we're actually starting to to be honest with ourselves. We're starting to see these things for what they are. And if we focus on these and be mindful of these things, saying to ourselves, distracted, distracted, liking or disliking, bored or so on, doubting, then we see that actually what's really happening is these things are coming up from inside and they're not being brought on by the meditation practice. These are some things that we've been carrying around with us inside. Once we're able to do away with these, then we start to find real peace and real happiness. So it does take um, a few days at any rate, but this is only because we're just starting to break the shell of our minds. You can't say we're really practicing in the first few days. We're just getting into the practice.
But as soon as we get into it, we find this wonderful benefit of, of real peace and happiness, where this relief from all of the stress and the worry, all of these poisonous emotions which are so much a part of our everyday life, these things which we carry around with us and are such a burden to us. And it's not to say that from then on in it's easy, but, but it's such a relief and it's such a change from our ordinary everyday life. And this is why many meditators, they come and they, they're able to say that they realize a happiness and a peace and a clarity that they've never had before. Many people are Buddhist, but they never really practiced intensive meditation, and so they aren't able to realize this. There's many people who have been Buddhist their whole lives, but only when they come to practice meditation, they feel shocked and they feel somehow betrayed that no one's ever given them the opportunity to realize this wonderful thing. And it can often be actually misleading, in fact, or it can uh, be somewhat uh, of a sidetrack. It's easy to get sidetracked because when you realize this, then you think, well, you've, you've realized something special. And indeed it is special, but it's only the very preliminary benefit, the very preliminary, uh, the, the start of the holy life. Once we have this happiness, we have to use this state of peace to start to look at the things that we have inside because obviously we're still full of many uh, unwholesome qualities which are going to lead us to suffering. So the second benefit is that we come to learn, we come to see many things about ourselves that we didn't see before. And we come to see a lot about our behaviors, about our, the patterns, the way we interact with the world around us that we didn't see before. We're able to see that uh, when we suffer, we're able to see the stresses, we're able to see our addictions, we're able to see our aversions. In fact, we start to learn that that many of the uh, apparently logical or reasonable ways of acting that we have of, of relating to the world are actually unreasonable, unlogical, are actually unwholesome. Or we think we need to do something in a certain way or so on. We think we need to uh, try to control ourselves. We need to um, try to force ourselves to be like this or be like that. We have to pretend to be this or pretend to be that. And all of our judgments, whereas before we thought, you know, we didn't think, see that there was anything wrong with holding ourselves up as this or as that, as better than someone else. We didn't see the, the or for instance, sometimes, this is quite often, especially with Buddhists, that we, we didn't see that, the, that when we are humble, for instance, when, when we hold ourselves below someone else. We didn't see that this was an unwholesome thing, that this was actually creating suffering. It's not beneficial to look at everyone else as, oh, they're all so much better than me, and feeling self-pity for yourself. Sometimes we think, yes, this is important, I'm such a horrible person, I should just see myself as a horrible person. I've got all these bad things inside, well, that makes me a bad person, or so on. All of these things that we didn't see about ourselves, this is what we come to see, we come to learn. I think this is one of the this is the second clearly realizable benefit that everyone starts to see. And I think this is the, the, it's important to mention this because some people don't realize it, that yeah, yeah, that's really what's happening here. So when someone else asks them, you know, you went to practice meditation, what what you get out of it? We're not able to give them an answer because we, don't, we, we, we didn't 
yet conceive of this, that actually, yeah, what's happening is we're learning about ourselves. We're coming to understand ourselves, understand all of our various neuroses, our various neurotic behaviors, our obsessions, our addictions, our, uh, these incorrect habits, these habits and tendencies that we have which are, are really horrible. They're really creating so much suffering for us. And it's, it's amazing, we find it amazing that we were actually uh, falling into these again and again. It's some, some kind of a wake-up. You know, this is why you know, enlightenment is called awakening. When we practice, you know, Buddha, one of the meanings of Buddha is the awakened one. Bujati means to become awakened. When you wake up from sleep, this is Bujati, Pati Bujati. When you wake up. Uh, and so meditation, of course, is, and Buddhism is always, we always talk about the awakening, becoming awake. And this is clearly what's happening. It's like we were asleep all this time. How could we have missed all of these things? We're crazy that we didn't see all of these things. And we're so thankful and, and appreciative of the meditation when we realize this. And we can see the wonderful benefit, and this is indeed a wonderful benefit. It's the ability to see one's own self. They say it's like why a person can't see the dirt on their own face. And they can't see their own face, and whether it's clean or dirty, it's because they don't have a mirror. And really our minds, it's the same way. We can't, we can't see the dirt in our own mind. It's kind of funny. We, we don't think like that. We think, oh yeah, I know who I am and what I like and dislike. And I know all of the things about myself. Until we practice meditation, we realize, oh, it was just like, like not being able to see one's own face. That we actually couldn't, we didn't have a clue about who we were. We didn't have a clue about all of these deep down emotional states. And so this is the second benefit. It's a very important one. The third one is that we gain mindfulness and clear awareness. Clear awareness is actually a difficult term to translate. But chanya means uh, total awareness. Sam means, uh, means good or perfect or uh, collected. Sampajanya is when you see something for what it is. This is basically what it means. It's a another word for wisdom but here it's used in a meditative in in a meditative sense when it's used with mindfulness it means mindfulness is the fixing on the object when we fix on its ultimate reality we sift out all of the uh, illusions so for instance when we say seeing we're cultivating mindfulness which as i said before it's actually a very difficult translation the, the a better translation would be recollective, recollection or remembrance or remi even reminding oneself. Mindfulness is the ability to remember, the ability to, or having a good memory. And so it's used in other ways in terms of talking about remembering the past or reminding ourselves about the future. But in meditation it means to remember that essence of reality, remember the object. So, for instance, when we see something, 90% we, we, of the time we forget that we're seeing. And right away we're thinking of the person that we see or the thing that we see and how it's good or it's bad and making all sorts of stories up about things that don't even exist. And we've forgotten the object. We have no clue that we're seeing something. We have no clue about the light touching the eye and the mind which receives it. We literally, we have no clue most of the time. If we think about this, this is 
this is indeed true, very true. It's undeniable that we're never really aware that we're seeing. We're just making up all sorts of stories and and uh, imagine illusions, imaginations about what it is that we see. So mindfulness is something which grasps that, which fixes the mind like a, a they say like a uh, like a tower, like a pillar, like a post stuck into the ground. There's uh, the simile between a, a pumpkin or a gourd floating on the water. A mind without mindfulness, without sati, is like a mi is like a pumpkin floating on the water. And a mind with mindfulness is like a, a pillar stuck into the ground. And this is the difference between how we take an object when we have mindfulness and when we don't. If, one wants, if you want to understand the meaning of the word sati, you understand it in this way. When your mind is floating like a pumpkin, not fixing on any object, this is not mindful. This is not sati. When the mind is fixed on an object, is fixed clearly and totally and completely on the object, this is sati. Uh, or the fixing on the object, the grasping of the object, this is sati. The remembering or the bringing the mind back again to the object. Bringing the mind to fix solely on the object. And this is what gives rise to sampajanya. Sampajanya is the knowing clearly, and they, they're paired together, so it's actually difficult to separate them. But here the mindfulness is the grasping of it, and the sampajanya is the result, is that you know only. Ba means completely or fully, it means that's all that's a, it's a sort of a totality. And sam is the same collected, not falling away, uh, not becoming more, not this non-proliferation, non-diffusement, not making more of something than it actually is. So this is a little bit to help us understand about the practice of our meditation. So when we practice, what we're trying to do is develop sati and sampajanya. And the, this, this is a benefit of the practice because when we do this, then all of these all of our defilements are released all of our misunderstandings about things that we experience for instance when someone yells at us well the reason we get angry is not because of the sound it's because of our own minds there's no one who can make you angry it's not possible we do a good enough job ourselves someone yells at us and instead of realizing that it's a sound and just listening to the sound we create all sorts of ideas about what it is that they're saying to us and how they're a terrible person for saying these things and so on. When in actual fact, all it is is sound touching the ear. And when we say to ourselves, hearing, 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 this mindfulness arises. This sati, sampajanya arises. We know clearly and fully the object, the sound. And it creates such peace and happiness. We're no longer worried, we're no longer stressed, we're no longer angry or bored or, or upset. And in the same, on the other side, we're no longer addicted to anything. When we see things that normally would make us so uh, full of greed and full of lust and attachment, we find ourselves seeing them simply for what they are, and it, it's kind of shocking. Well, well where did the, the attractiveness go? And we realize it was just a delusion. When someone's yelling at us, we say, hearing, it's like 
well, where did the where did the anger go? It's like it was never there in the first place. There was no suddenly this idea that this is a bad thing just is gone. Sometimes people are are confused as to what is the benefit of mindfulness. Because when you have mindfulness, it's like nothing's happening. It's like, well, where's the fireworks? Where's the this wonderful thing, this enlightenment that's supposed to be happening? Nothing's happening. And this is the point, really. We're bringing the mind back to something very normal, very, very real. And if we're careful and if we're systematic about it, we can catch all of the things which are creating stress even here and now. Even just sitting here, we can find there are many things that are creating stress. Maybe we're listening for a long time and we get bored, or we've got pain in the body, and so we get, uh, we get upset, or we want to get up and walk, or we want to get up and leave, or we want to go to the washroom, or, so on, or it's hot, or it's cold. And when we're, when we're mindful of these things, when we're able to catch them up in our minds, and fix and focus on them, we, we can do away with all of these unwholesome mind states. And when we're able to do this, we, we see the com there's a complete difference. This, our minds are clear. Everything we do and everything we say is clear. It's fully aware. It's not confused. It's like we've got this wonderful uh, gift. It's like we're suddenly a wonderful person. We're suddenly perfect in that moment. And so this is the third benefit, is our ability to be perfect, our ability to take things exactly as they should be taken, through being, uh, having sati, having this remembrance, kind of like remembering ourselves, and this clear awareness. The fourth benefit is the most important one, is that we're able to do away with defilements. And this is, of course, through having mindfulness, but... On another level, the practice of mindfulness is something which lasts temporarily. So we say we're a perfect person in that moment, but it's still only that moment, and it's only because of the focus and the fixed nature of the mind that the mind is actually has very strong concentration at that moment. But what happens when we practice on another level is that our concentration becomes strong, but also our understanding becomes very strong as we fix and fix and fix again and again and again on the present moment, we come to realize that actually everything, both inside of ourselves and in, and in the world around us, is changing, is impermanent. This isn't something that comes from books, it's something that we see. It's like, wow, it's exactly as the Lord Buddha said it is. We come to see everything changing in ways that we didn't think it was going to change. I mean, we've heard this talk about impermanence, but we thought we understood it, but it's like, whoa, it really is impermanent. We see it on a whole different level. We see everything arising and ceasing, and then we see suffering. We see that we're suffering so much because of this, because we're attaching to things. We're holding on to things that we shouldn't be holding on to. And we see everything as unpleasant. We see nothing as pleasant. We, every, anything arises, we, we know clearly that all we have to do is hold on to that, to grasp onto that, and to seek for that, and to think of that as happiness, and we're going to fall into a great mass of suffering because of our addiction, because of our attachment to it. And so we start to see things in a whole different way. 
And finally, we see things as not, not self. We say they're not me, they're not mine. We see that we can't control things to be in any other way. And this is very common when meditators are watching this rising and the falling of the stomach. In the beginning, they can't help but try to control the stomach rising and falling, and they control it again and again and again. And it can become very frustrating for the beginner meditator who thinks that there's no possible way that they can practice correctly. And this, this frustration is sort of, in part, it's a realization of non-self. It's a very important realization, and it shouldn't lead to frustration. It shouldn't, we shouldn't let it lead us to discouragement. But what's happening is that when we see it again and again, and we have to start over again and again and again, and see that we're practicing incorrectly again and again and again, we're not able to, we're not able to bear with that. This is something very difficult to see and very difficult to bear, this idea of non-self. And so the, our patience is not at the level that allows us to see it, and so we give rise to anger and frustration and so on. But actually, what we're doing here is building patience and building uh, understanding. When we, when we watch the rising and the falling and our mind is forcing, uh, is pushing it, or is, is uh, making it be deep and long and trying to keep it stable or so on, and then we try again just to watch, just to watch, and again and again we're forcing it. What we're doing is building both patience and understanding. Patience with the, our inability to practice correctly and understanding that we can't force ourselves, even force ourselves to stop forcing. That all, that's, all that we can do is to continue to watch and slowly, slowly train ourselves like switching course. Like when you turn an automobile, you have to turn slowly, you have to apply the brake and turn slowly. You can't just turn in one moment. And so we start to see that this actually, our, even our own minds, we can't force it to be the way we want it. Now when we see these things clearly, this is the most important understanding which we gain from the practice. As we see this clearly again and again and again, which hap what happens is the mind just lets go. There's this moment where the mind just gives up and lets go. Uh, and I suppose we can say that there's many of these moments in the beginning as well. We start to let go a little bit, a little bit, little by little by little. What we're talking about here is completely letting go. And I've talked about it before where we're, it's like, the, like a, a, the example of a, a person holding on to the edge of the cliff. We're like, we're like a person holding on to the edge of the cliff or we think of ourselves as a person holding on to the, the cliff. Uh, we're gr grasping onto everything like a person thinking, thinking that we're going to fall. That if we don't hold on to these things, we're going to be lost. And this is what we're always faced with when we be, when we ordain or when when we become a monk or a nun. We, it's so such a difficult plunge to take because you know you have no security, and we think, oh, if if I give up all of these things, how am I going to be secure? How am I going to be happy? I'm going to be in great difficulty and danger. But the truth, the truth of the matter, as I've said before, is like we're more like a bird. And actually, is when we let go, that's that's the where the where the the wonder begins. That's where we can fly. Because it's the grasping on here is not stopping us from falling; it's stopping us from flying. And so, when the mind lets go and finally gives up, that's when the peace and the happiness and the freedom from suffering comes. 
and the mind which lets go, this is the realization of nirvana. This is the ultimate, the samam bonam, the ultimate goal of Buddhism. And it's just this, it's this flying where the mind is no longer clinging to anything, where the mind is free, where the mind disappears inward, it gives up all attachment to things external, all attachment to anything. And this is the ultimate goal of Buddhism. And this is the ultimate, the highest benefit of the practice of meditation, both walking and sitting. But here we're talking about the difference between the two. Well, I would say that in general, walking meditation has many more benefits for the body, and sitting meditation is, is uh, still, still generally of more benefit to the mind. But uh, walking meditation, of course, gives these wonderful preliminary benefits of charging the mind, uh, giving one patience and endurance, and this long-lasting concentration which the Lord Buddha uh, mentions in, in his teachings. So that's the Dhamma for today. I thank you for listening and ask everyone to continue practicing meditation. And we'll see you for reporting at 3 uh, 3.30.